The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello and welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. And boy, do we have a packed show for you today. We're going to actually try out a new format. We'll do some news at the top and then move to analysis in the second half with a new guest. Um, Our first guest today is going to be Adrienne Jeffrey. She's an investigative reporter at The Markup. We're going to talk about this bombshell Amazon story that she and a fellow reporter at The Markup dropped. And then in the second half, we'll have Renee DeResta come up and speak with us about what she calls ampliganda, amplified propaganda coming from the bottom up and not from the top down. But first, let's speak with Adrian. Adrian, welcome to the show. It's great having you here. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being here. You uh, are the lead byline on one of two bombshell stories about Amazon this week that both focus on the company's private label brands. These are the brands that come from Amazon that are fairly indistinguishable from the rest of the brands on the marketplace. On the website, there's long been discussions of whether Amazon favors its products. Jeff Bezos famously kind of waffled on the question in front of Congress a few years ago. But now we have proof that Amazon is uh, not only preferencing uh, its products in search, uh, it's also copying private label brands, not in a haphazard way, but in a systemic way, which is something the Reuters story got into. Um, but but let's talk about yours. So you uh, and your co-author decided to go and examine whether Amazon was preferencing these private label brands, the brands that it has uh, created on its own in search results. And it seems like that you caught the company red-handed with some serious self-dealing. So do you want to share a little bit about uh, what you found? Sure. Um, so we've been told by lawyers to avoid phrases like serious self-dealing. So I'm not sure I can get yeah, yeah. that far. No, but no. It, this, is, find... this is the fun part of the show, right? Okay. I, I'll make the big proclamations. You can walk Wonderful. me back and, and tell us what the truth is. So go Perfect. ahead. Perfect. Yeah. So we did this story. Um, so my reporting partner is Leon Yin. He's a data journalist. And the way the markup works is we typically take a big story and assign a team of a reporter, that's me, and a data journalist to work together. So I mostly did the reporting, talking to sellers, interviewing experts, and uh, Leon did the data collection. Um, And then together we worked on the analysis and how to um, tell those in a human understandable way. Okay. But what did you find? Yeah. So we, we started looking at this because we did a similar story last year about Google's search results, where we looked to see how much of the page was actually directing people back to other Google stuff. So this is like the one box answer or Google Maps or Google Flights. And we found pretty uh, pretty significant findings there that they were taking up a lot of the page, especially at the top, to send people back to their own stuff. So once we finished that story, we were riding high. We were like, let's just do this again for Amazon. Amazon has its own stuff. Amazon has search results. Everybody uses Amazon search. We'll do it. It'll take a couple months. It ended up being a really complicated data collection project and took much longer. However, we ended up with a similar finding that Amazon's private labels and its exclusives, which together that's a category that Amazon refers to as our brands, 
those were very frequently in the number one spot. And they were often outranking products from competitors that had uh, more more reviews and better star ratings. Yeah, so that was the base, the basic finding. So if I'm getting it right, the finding is that Amazon has some products that it can list only exclusively on Amazon, so you can't find them elsewhere. Products that it creates itself. And when mm-hmm. you search for the product categories, let's say a coffee grinder on Amazon, even if the product has been in market for shorter, even if it has less uh, reviews, even if it has less favorable reviews, when you do that search, you're going to find the Amazon product first. Right. So this is, um, we don't know the exact mechanism by which this happens. Um, we did talk to some former Amazon employees who described a practice that's also reported in the Reuters story called search seeding, where you can introduce a new Amazon label. They don't do this anymore, but for a couple of years, this is how they were doing it. They would introduce a new product, say Amazon Elements Baby Wipes, and they would just set that product's score in the search results, the whatever the relevancy score is. They would match it to another popular product. So for the baby, their own baby wipes, they said, these baby wipes, they probably should have about the same score as baby wipes from Huggies. So they would set it up so that as soon as they dropped the product, the Amazon one would appear in the top right after the Huggies version. And that's something that third-party sellers obviously can't do. If you launch a product, you start at zero and you have to claw your way up to the top. So that was a really clear way that they were preferencing their own products. Um, we don't, we didn't find um, the exact mechanism by which that's still happening. They are using what they call merchandising placement, where they stick a product. Often we saw up to three times on the page, but in the in the number one spot is usually where it appears first. And uh, it's an Amazon product or an exclusive, and it says featured from our brands. And so, and we asked Amazon, "Is this an ad? What is this? Is this a search result?" And they said, "No, it's a merchandising placement." which is a phrase that they made up to describe this situation. So we don't know exactly how that happens, but um, in the data, it came out very clear. Uh, knowing only whether a product was an Amazon brand was enough to predict whether it was going to be number one, like far more than any of the other things we were able to measure. Right. And, and so the argument against this and the argument will continue to be that this is Amazon's store. And, you know, just like, Brick and mortar stores are able to create their own products. Think about Costco and the Kirkland brand. Why can't Amazon create its own and put them at the top? I mean, it is its own site. So where where do you see the issue here? Yeah, I think what some antitrust advocates will say is like, okay, just because Walmart doesn't too does it too doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't hurt competition, that it's not having a deleterious effect on the economy and customers. Um, so that's the first response to that defense. But also, there are some things that make it just different when you're on a platform versus when you are doing like a traditional brick and mortar mm-hmm. sort of What's placement. That? Like, well, on the Amazon platform, there's just a million different levers that Amazon can pull to try to push people towards certain products. Whereas if you're in a store, they really can only do a couple things. They can like put a big sign on it. They can put it at eye level. They can put it on an end cap. But they can't uh, do as much um, to direct the user through the user interface to buy a certain thing. The other thing is that on a store shelf, you're not necessarily 
you don't necessarily assume anything about the product based on where it is on the shelf. Like, I'm not thinking, oh, because like this soap is on the top shelf, it's the best soap. Whereas we surveyed people and found that they pretty much believe that the number one search result on Amazon means it's either best rated, uh, best seller, or lowest price, and not that it's just an Amazon product. So consumer expectations are really important for these kinds of uh, questions also um, in right. the eyes of regulators. That's a good point. And the, the, other, the other thing that someone who's defending Amazon might say, just I'm going to advance it for the sake of the argument and to be able to really discuss this in a full 360 way, is that Amazon is a website that people go to. And if they're not getting value out of Amazon.com, they can always type another value. So by placing its own brands uh, at the top here, Amazon's actually taking a pretty significant bet that if they don't deliver for people, they're not going to keep coming back to Amazon. So what do you think about that? Yeah, and I think all the antitrust arguments kind of hinge on whether or not people have a choice between Amazon and something else. So the first step in any antitrust case is to establish what the market is and who the dominant players are and how much choice there is. From talking to sellers, they pretty much feel like they have to sell on Amazon. Um, conservative estimates, Amazon is 40% of retail, uh, of e-commerce retail. So it's a lot. Um, and there are estimates that are higher than that. So that's that's kind of the first step is to say, you know, how much choice do you have if you're not getting good quality from Amazon.com? Can you really go somewhere else? If you're a seller, can you really make a living somewhere else? If you can't, then it's potentially a problem for competition under U.S. antitrust law. Do you think people can go other places? What, what is your perspective on this? Um, my perspective as a, somebody who lives in North Brooklyn is that Amazon <laughs> is pretty dominant. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's the kind of thing that antitrust regulators would have to investigate carefully. And that's the sort of thing where Amazon would push back and say, you know, you're measuring the market wrong. Like, you can't just have one big market for all e-commerce. That doesn't make sense. Uh, we have lots of competition. Um, one funny thing that I enjoyed from the – there was this big antitrust subcommittee report that came out of Congress last year. And at one point, they asked Amazon for a list of their competitors, and Amazon submitted a list with lots of names. And one one of them was Eero, which actually Amazon owns. So it's gotten to the yeah. point where they own so many brands that they may be losing track of them internally. Yeah. I, I personally think that the argument that – Amazon is a monopoly or you can't go other, anywhere else is going to be extremely difficult to prove. Uh, you look at the increasing uh, competency that a company like Walmart has. Uh, you look at the success of Shopify and how it's empowering some of the same independent vendors uh, to sell on their own sites and use things like Facebook ads or Google uh, to promote their, their goods as, as opposed to relying on Amazon. You know, that's going to be tough. Uh, in, in any antitrust case to prove. I mean, um, but the, you know, I think we are starting to see some movement to rewrite the rules and actually explicitly ban this type of stuff um, mm -hmm. when it comes to the tech giants. So also this week we had a story, uh, I mean, it's all over the news, but I'm just looking at a headline in the Washington Post. Senators aim to block tech giants from prioritizing their own products over rivals. Right, it goes exactly to to this point here, which is that if you own a big platform, if a bill like this passes, you will be prohibited from doing something like rigging the search results in your favor. So I'm curious what your view is on, on that bill. I mean, it's it's a matching bill in the House and the Senate, 
Um, it's kind of gotten stuck in the house. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I haven't heard any noise about it ever since it came out. Um, but there could be some momentum now that it's in the Senate as well. So what do you think the chances are that something like this passes? And um, do you think it will have an overall positive effect on the market and, and competition if it does? Yeah, I think it's tough to place a bet on Congress passing any laws. They just don't <laughs> seem to pass a lot of laws. That's true. It's not days. their favorite thing to do. Yeah. No, um, but there is a lot of attention and a lot of energy around the power that the big tech platforms have. Um, I think people have just started to feel like they, the amount of power they have is is getting really large and it's kind of scary, just sort mm-hmm. of in a broad ambient way. Um, and members of Congress are picking up on that. And then the possible impact on the elections also has made elected officials, I think, feel threatened. So could this actually, it is really encouraged. This is um, part of a package of bills that were introduced in the House. Um, There are several that are aimed at curbing big tech power. And this one seems to be the one with the most traction. It's called the American Choice and Innovation Online Act, I think. And yeah, it says you can't, sorry. Very catchy name. Yeah, very catchy name. So, I mean, yeah, it, the, a law would be um, a much faster way to get any kind of enforcement on this stuff. Like lots of people will say what Amazon is doing, what Google is doing with preferencing their own products is already illegal under antitrust law. But antitrust law has been very loosely enforced for the past couple decades. And uh, the way to get something done without having to undo a lot of precedent um, with antitrust enforcement would be to to pass a new law that's explicitly aimed at this. Um, and yeah. yeah, the law seems to be uh, it. It does seem like it would make this stuff illegal if it's if they're playing dirty. Like that, it doesn't say mm-hmm. Amazon can't compete on its website. But it says they can't can't use data advantage themselves. From, yeah, can't right. use it's data would like, otherwise not have uh, to improve its products. And, and I, I think that sort of goes to and I want to get to the Reuters story before we hop off. But it goes to the to the crux of the Reuters story, which essentially showed Amazon trying to sell its own or through a partner its own exclusive or private label brands, and there being a lot of returns. And so Amazon basically looked at um, you know competing. T- it was a T-shirt brand competing T-shirts. And pulled the measurements off the ones that right. were doing extreme, extremely well, transposed that onto its brand, and then all of a sudden got a leg up. And, you know, I, it, it's a complicated thing because when you have access to a platform the size of Amazon, you can turn uh, basically nothing into a large business if you hit it right. And so the company does provide opportunities for companies to do it. But there is this sense among third party vendors that as soon as you get too big, all of a sudden, Amazon is going to figure out what makes you special, copy it, and then either put you out of business or knock you down a few pegs. And mm-hmm. until this past week, that was largely something that people were kind of feeling in their bones, but we didn't have the documentation, and, and now we do. So you know, I do I do uh, wonder what you think about, about that situation. Right. It does seem like you look at that, and then you, you look at the copying, you look at the fact that they're... Uh, rigging the search results, and, and it does paint a different picture of Amazon. Maybe that's what we come out of this week looking at. Yeah, I think so. That's another thing that this American Choice and Innovation Online Act makes explicitly illegal is using that secret uh, data to 
inform their own decisions about what to launch. Um, and yeah, what Amazon did in India was pretty blatant um, based on this reporting by Reuters, which is they didn't publish the documents, but um, they quoted from a lot of these internal Amazon documents. Um, and it's it's pretty clear that there was a deliberate strategic um, push to uh, make Amazon's own private labels get more market share in India. And yeah, I think the the data question is, you know, like this, there's an analogy in U.S. history with uh, the railroads. So like uh, this, this bill is looking at non, it's looking at non-discrimination. Um, and uh, the railroad analogy is like you have the railroad, they own the tracks. They also own companies that ship things on the tracks. So they're like, oh, our coal, it's going to go first down the railroad and competitors mm-hmm. are going to have to wait until our coal has been shipped and then you can ship your own coal. And that is kind of the crux of what's going on with Amazon is that they own the infrastructure. Everybody else is building on that infrastructure. Um, you know, there's lots of advice not to build on other people's infrastructure because this is one of the things that can happen. But um, it does come down to like, what, what impact does that have on customers? What impact does that have on competition and innovation and the American economy? Um, and that's something that uh, there's definitely a lot of attention around. So maybe we'll get oh, an yes. answer to it at some point. Yeah. And we will c- continue to focus on that stuff on this show. It's obviously a moment where all the big tech companies are facing questions about the way that they influence competition. And those questions don't seem to be going away no matter how slow Congress is moving. So it's a mm-hmm. key issue, uh, something we'll keep focusing on. Um, but Adrian, thank you for coming here and sharing a little bit more about um, your findings and your reporting and, and, and what the implications are. We appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. Thanks. Coming up after the break, we're going to speak with Renee DeResta, Technical Research Manager at Stanford Internet Observatory. She wrote a great piece in the Atlantic called It's Not Misinformation, It's Amplified Propaganda. And the story looks into um, why misinformation is actually kind of a bad word uh, for all the, um, or a useless term in some ways, for all the bad stuff that we see online. It's become this catch-all that's now meaningless. Uh, and she's going to talk a little bit with us about uh, how there are these bottom-up influence campaigns that are coming, not from Russians, not from bots, but you know from within the house. And uh, we're going to get into that and talk about what it means for social platforms. So thanks so much for uh, sticking with us through the first half. We'll be back right after this on the Big Technology Podcast. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan... TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast for our second segment. Joining us is Renee DeResta. She's the technical research manager at Stanford's Internet Observatory, and she's out with a great piece in The Atlantic. Uh, that you have to check out. It's called, It's Not Misinformation, It's Amplified Propaganda. This is the part of the show where we're going to get a little bit more into analysis, some deeper thoughts about the tech world. 
And Renee, I love this because, first of all, you start off talking about how misinformation is really a clunky word for all this suspicious and manipulated stuff you see online and you coin this new word, ampliganda. Uh, why don't we start off by telling the story of Shahid Buttar, who used a network of very real people to game some algorithms and get a hashtag Pelosi must go trending and spark a discussion that that really spanned many communities. Yeah, so it was a really interesting morning. Um, We were doing some observation of the conversation around the the primaries and the in California. 2020? In 2020, yes. So we'd been following along with a number of these conversations. And what we saw time and time again was completely authentic accounts that would manage to get particular things trending. This is a you know just a form of networked activism. But the public conversation about it, the kind of meta conversation, often insinuated that there was something inauthentic that was happening, that these were bot accounts, um, that they yeah. were uh, in some way, you know, they were they would kind of harken back to this idea of the Russian bots of 2015, 2016. And what we were seeing at Stanford Internet Observatory is that these were completely authentic, very real, legitimate activists. And so this led to some interesting questions about was this... Before we move on, so let me just make sure I have this right. So um, there are big trends in the 2020 primaries as we start to see congressional uh, candidates make moves um, and, and maybe presidential stuff. And so people who have this experience seeing the way that the Russian... Uh, internet observatory or internet, what, what are they called? Agency. Internet, They're the yeah, internet that's research not you guys. <laughs> not us. Yes. Didn't mean to imply that. Anyway, so the internet research agency has hijacked some of these trends and gotten stuff moving on social media. People see move, stuff moving on social media and immediately go to the bots. But what you found was it was actually very real people who had found right. a way to gamify these algorithms and put their talking points front and center. Yes. And this is just activism. And so it's not misinformation. There's nothing falsifiable about anything that is that is happening in this momentum. This is just real people expressing themselves politically uh, across a variety of, uh, you know, kind of places along the political spectrum. And so the interesting question becomes, you know, where is that line with coordination? Where is that line with authenticity? Um, Where is that that line with uh, thinking about how we as a country in our political process are incorporating in these networked movements into our political conversation. And then the sometimes unexpected ways in which the networked activism community intersects with the media as media kind of picks up and reports on the hashtags uh, using this, um, generally speaking, it was things like people on the internet are saying, people on the internet are are talking about X, Y, Z was trending I worked yeah. at BuzzFeed. I know those stories well. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that something is trending is a story, mm-hmm. which is in and of itself kind of remarkable because it, 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 it's, it's a meta story. It's not focusing on the substance. And interestingly, when I was talking to Shahid, this is what he starts to say to me as I asked so, him about so that morning. Shahid? So Shahid is a, um, a democratic socialist who was running against Nancy Pelosi um, in the, in the, the race for, um, for Congress in San Francisco. Um, and so the way that the California primary works, she had had a Republican challenger as well, but it's the two top vote getters who go on to the general election. And so in this case, it was Shahid, who's a democratic socialist. So to her left uh, and then her. 
And so he remarks upon the fact that she won't debate him. So there's not a lot of media coverage that he's able to get for his campaign. He's talking about the issues that he cares about. I mean, Medicare for all and the kind of democratic socialist platform, um, you know, fossil fuel industry uh, stuff. And yeah. And he pulls the classic move of like debating an empty chair. He debates an empty chair, you know, and so he wants to get attention for his campaign. He wants to get attention actually for his ideas. Mm -hmm. But the incentives for how we communicate online are not to talk about the ideas. You're not necessarily going to get that hashtag about um this is my political plank on fossil fuels. That's not going to trend. Not a whole lot of people are going to pay attention to that. But Pelosi must go. That's the hashtag that him and that he and his team kind of land upon. Well, that's a, that's kind of like a Rorschach test, right? Anybody can read anything into that. And so it becomes something that a whole variety of different activist communities can aggregate around. They can see what they want to in it. And they feel compelled to participate from whatever political point of view it is that they hold uh, in opposition usually to Pelosi, but we do see people begin to come in trying to reclaim the hashtag with content like Pelosi must go straight to the White House to take over the presidency. You know, so there's um, there's people, her supporters are in there too at some point. And so all of a sudden the entire internet is talking about this Pelosi must go yeah. on this Sunday morning. And, you know, it was, it was just fascinating to watch it kind of hop, um, kind of hop around the ecosystem. And, and how, did he it get was his, all... how did he get it trending in the first place? Did he like he and support and his supporters coordinated on some discord channel? And you, you were watching this go down as, as, as yeah, so I, was, I was watching it in, in real time. Um, you know, we were interested in looking for actually that foreign interference, those Russian bots that, you know, that, uh, that everybody thought would be much more prominent as they had been in 2015, 2016. And, Really, the platform integrity teams, um, to their credit, they kill off inauthentic accounts very quickly lately. They uh, they deprecate bots, so automated accounts don't surface in trends. There's the gray box where kind of low-quality garbage accounts, people sock puppets and throwaways, they don't actually surface. And so it, what you have instead is just these very highly activist online communities um, that sometimes coordinate and sometimes compete. And that's kind of an interesting dynamic, too. So even though the democratic socialist left that precipitated this hashtag has very little in common with the uh, the kind of Trump right that that picks it up um, through that act of shared participation in the hashtag, they elevate it to the attention of the public as it hits number one on Twitter yeah. trends. And for the ordinary public who has not you know is not aware that this was kind of coordinated in the Discord and some Twitter chats. And then picked up by other activists on the other side of the political spectrum. They don't see any of that. All they see is the hashtag. So it right. looks like hundreds of thousands of people are very angry at Nancy Pelosi on this random Saturday morning or Sunday morning in July. So so I think it's important to establish how did they get it trending in the first place? So was it like everybody on this Discord channel that supported um, Shahid Buttar, uh, who's the candidate, said, uh, on this day, at this time, we're all going to tweet, Pelosi must go. Don't have more than two hashtags, then people, will, then the system will think you're a bot. And if we push it with enough momentum, the system will start to see that something's happening here. And then others will glom onto it and it becomes a story. That's exactly right. And so this is, you know, this is a marketing tactic. This is an activism tactic. There is nothing that is inauthentic necessarily about this tactic. When people want attention, 
on the internet, this is a thing that they do. And more often than not, you know, many of these uh, attempts at engineered virality fail uh, because the hashtag isn't appealing enough and it doesn't have that, um, that, you know, the je ne sais quoi that like makes people want to get up and like fight about it, you know, <laughs> but this particular yeah. one, Pelosi yeah. must go, it did, right. It, it, it had that, um, I can read into it, my political beliefs. And I, a passionate person on Twitter on a Sunday morning, am going to add my contribution or retweet the people who were in there. And so it started off as this, um, this moment where if they could get critical mass, they would begin to climb the leaderboard. And then as it climbs the leaderboard, other people notice it, observe, and begin to participate, and that's the. Uh, and then it starts to kind of bounce around the um, this, the Twitter sphere, mm-hmm. and sometimes you see um, hyperpartisan media on one side or another will write that people on the internet are saying article. Yeah, and so the problem here is that the stuff that we see on social media that we think might have shown up organically is actually something that's been, uh, you know, put on a trending topic or into our feed through a, you know, coordinated uh, manipulation of the algorithm. And we don't know because it's never labeled that that's what happened. What I was thinking about as I wrote the article was was not even that it was manipulative, actually. It was the question uh, of what is manipulative? What What is, yeah. um, what is, reasonable what is normal today how do we think about this what kind of visibility do we want to have into twitter trends what make what might make us have some better understanding of why a particular thing is put forth in a format that is designed to capture our attention and make us want to participate is it engineered virality which maybe engineered virality is perfectly fine if it's done by legitimate accounts i you know i think that's actually one of the really interesting questions that i think we need to be thinking about right but when you have those moments when you have the kind of um the things that rise to the top of twitter i think that there's a innate belief among much of the public that it's happening because groups of people just happen to have a strong opinion on a particular day. Mm-hmm. Imagine you've had this experience. You see a trend and you click in and you, you're you curious, right? You're like, why is this hashtag here? You go, you click in, you, like, you start reading the conversation, you go down a couple of rabbit holes, you're trying to figure out what did this person actually do? I've seen a couple of these because you know other groups that were really, really good at getting things trending before Twitter took action after January 6th was QAnon. So do you remember like Wayfair, right? The, uh, the, there was the story that Wayfair was trafficking children. Right. And this, again, we have, there's some really interesting questions around this, which is that, that, that trend begins to happen because a group of people come to the conclusion that Wayfair is selling children, not filing cabinets. And these get hundreds of thousands of engagements on Instagram. They have evidence collages. They've made all of these these snippets of the filing cabinet next to the headline with the name of a missing child. Oh my and then God. they're I just don't know. <laughs> How'd you get you it? To, did you see this? I did. I just don't understand. I mean, maybe it's because I'm out of touch with the internet. I just don't get how you pick Wayfair, which is like, you know, the most inconspicuous furniture company, right? <laughs> to to target them. Matter. Maybe someone had a bad experience or a table came chip, but I, that I to associate them. That. With with child me, trafficking, me, yeah. Let's hear your perspective on this. Let me posit that it's actually a sincerely held belief, right? How I think that those of us who think that it's crazy, yeah. or those of us who think that it's completely outlandish, 
are operating from very, very different position. Whereas those people who have been immersed in QAnon lore and QAnon mythology and have been conditioned to see Look for the proof. This kind of content everywhere, right? They, yeah. they firmly believe that every company, every democratic politician, all of these people are in cahoots in some way. And so then this inexplicable thing, a $13,000 filing cabinet named Samia, and there had been a missing child named Samia. And so somebody on the internet kind of connects the dots, so to speak, and that yeah. Pepe Silvia, you know, <laughs> kind of That's sense right. of the word where um, the conspiracy theorist version of that. And then they they tweet it out, and then there's a receptive audience there. There's a crowd. Twitter took down 70,000 accounts in this QAnon network after January 6th. But what these accounts were doing was they were constantly surfacing this content. And so they were making things trend. Wayfair traffics children and these other hashtags around Wayfair were trending. Interestingly, this was happening at the same time as Shahid Batar's Pelosi Moscow. This was all right around the same time frame. And... The QAnon people saw the Pelosi must go trend climbing the, you know, climbing the ranks and right. Twitter trending. As they're getting they up began, on where, Wayfair. Yeah. Yeah. But, and they start marrying the hashtags. They start using both of the hashtags, Pelosi must go and Wayfair traffics children. They begin to create tweets that co-occur so that anyone who clicks into the Pelosi must go hashtag, trying to figure out what's happening there then is introduced to and sees the Wayfair Traffic's children hashtags. And so it's a way to kind of draw another audience to pay attention to their hashtag (laughs) that they are actively trying to make trend. And they get trending one or two times and then Twitter starts to throttle it. Mm. And then they're convinced that they're being censored because Twitter is now taking action and saying, no, 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 the Wayfair hashtags are no longer going to trend. This is a conspiracy theory. And they curate the platform to remove that trend, leading to the allegation that Twitter is kind of putting its thumb on the scale by deciding what shows up in that in that trending feed. And that actually, you know, that's that's the question, right? What belongs in that trending section if the platform is putting it forth and saying these are trends, these are things that you should be paying attention to. Right. What kind of information should the public have, understanding the provenance, should Twitter curate out the wildly false or defamatory stuff, or is that again networked activism just from a you know from a different community? And where is that you know where are these lines? So this is I think the interesting question um, is not I, I picked Pelosi must go as my example for the yeah. story because I liked that it hit all of these different groups. And if you read the article, it starts with Shahid and his team of Democratic Socialists makes its way to um, to Pelosi's Republican challenger. Uh, who is now out of the race officially, but still had 300,000 followers, you know, enough following to put her own spin on Pelosi must go, makes it to more of the, uh, again, the QAnon Wayfair set come into the chat, so to speak. And then we have the more traditional kind of pro-Trump right, again, who stridently dislike Pelosi and they have their own spin on it. And so you see this entire constellation of different accounts, but this is how messages spread today. And I thought... I wanted to try to get at that dynamic and start to actually interrogate the question of yeah. what should we be seeing in trending? Trending captures public attention. Trending facilitates media stories. It's not misinformation at all. The Wayfair stuff, like, absolutely. You know? Yeah. Okay, let's clarify <laughs> but that. But a lot of the yeah. hashtags, right. <laughs> Wayfair does not. This podcast you know, is not believed. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but that, I think, I think that dynamic is, is what's so interesting as we think about how do platforms curate 
how do regulators who are now very concerned about yes. the algorithm? Okay. Sorry, um, I got to ask you, you know, we've been Go talking ahead. about this question. <laughs> what do you think they should do? Twitter? I mean, yeah, like, if, if, okay, you brought up earlier. So I was saying this is manipulation. You brought up earlier. Maybe we don't clar- you know, classify this as misinformation. You said there's a big question of how a platform should, uh, sorry, you said maybe you don't uh, classify this as manipulation. And then you said there's a big question about how should Twitter handle this? So, okay, we've definitely identified the problem. What's your, your perspective on the solution here? What, what does a platform do? How, how, do we, how do we think about this stuff? So I think there's a few things. So first, there's the my, my preference, generally speaking, is to leave content up, right? I, I don't I don't like the takedown of accounts. I don't like the takedown of, of tweets. I think that unless there's um, you know kind of direct harassment or incitement, it, it's actually usually just counterproductive. It just spins up a whole second order um, you know thread about censorship, and more people see the yeah. content than would have if it had just been left up. Um, but I think this question of what constitutes a trend? Like what is, what is Twitter's intended function with that feature? Is it to inform the public about things that they potentially would want to pay attention to? Um, they are very personalized. You know, even as we were watching um, this trend climb the, climb the trending hashtags, it was like a slightly different number for me versus some of my colleagues, again, depending on how other things competed for our interests. I think the, The contextualization that Twitter is doing now is a lot better, but in a funny way, it really reminds me of- Where they give you some um, information about the trend underneath it. Right, exactly. And and a human editor is doing that, right? Right, So there's a human in the loop at that point. And it makes me think a lot about Twitter is actually moving almost in the opposite direction that Facebook went. Do you remember Facebook used to have trending topics? Yeah. Then they they crushed it. They killed it. Yeah. And they killed it because they had human curators in the loop who were trying to downrank the wild conspiratorial trends that were happening. And they got accused of being biased against conservatives. Exactly. Of anti-conservative censorship, because a lot of what was happening at the time was these sort of, um, this was the age of like the Macedonian teenager fake news blogs. And so a lot of what was surfacing was this was when fake news meant demonstrably false news, you know, versus what it, you know, things they don't like on the internet. Um, and the, the dynamic that was happening there was the curators were actually throttling the stuff that was really way out there or was coming from these garbage unknown blogs that just managed to, you know, kind of gain the ecosystem and achieve these viral moments. And that was processed as anti-conservative bias. And what Facebook actually did was they removed the humans in the loop. And then all of a sudden, all of this stuff, you know, I remember in the science section, there was like a witch blog. It was like some, some Wiccan blog. It had like the old GeoCity style, you know, like, like blinking GIF kind of stuff. You know, I, I, I yeah, mean, there was. I'll, I'll say that there was a moment where I was like, Facebook has what it was at that point, one point something billion people using it. And I was like, what if someone just made a publication that all they did was publish stories that were linked to Facebook's trending topics? And could they make a go of it? I thought about starting it. Um, Obviously, ended up landing on big technology a few years later, and I'm happy about that because Facebook killed the trending column. But uh, a lot of people saw the economic opportunity, and then just like you mentioned, they spin up these you know uh, bare bones sites using maybe GeoCities or whatever it is. Even though I don't think GeoCities exists anymore. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. GeoCities was the way to go. Shout out GeoCities, but you know, <laughs> and then they then they are in front of massive audiences. Um, with yeah, 
anyway, it's, it's interesting. Well, and so Facebook ultimately killed the feature, yeah. which, which you yes. just hit on. And they killed the feature because it became, when, it, when there was no longer that human in the loop curation, it just turned into whoever managed to game the virality um, kind of, you know, either with an insane headline or with clickbait, click farms, uh, sorry, clickbait headlines, click farms, generating fake engagement. Um, throwing things into groups that were highly, highly activist. Again, it's this idea of network activism, people who believe that their mission is to share the truth. And those, you know, those people would often be very, very active. Um, kind of called it, I remember when we were looking at the anti-vaccine movement, we called it the asymmetry of passion, right? Hmm. People who believed that there was a um, nefarious plot underway really saw uh, you know, this conspiracy theorist dynamic was that they really believed that they were telling the truth to the public. And so they were passionate about sharing. And I try to get into this in the Atlantic essay yeah. also. This idea of the exhortation, you must participate. This is your moment. You know, you are uncovering yeah. the truth or sharing the truth or spreading the truth. And so that it, it just, you know, for Facebook, it got to the point where without the human curators who were accused of being biased, they instead had this just wild nonsense trending all the time. And so they killed the feature. Twitter's going in the other direction, right? It used to have uh, the bots and then the, you know, then they did a bunch of rejiggering to make it harder to get something to trend and came up with this idea of low quality accounts. But now ultimately are moving towards that more curated model, right. uh, which then does open up to allegations. Humans. Human. Yeah. Probably human. Probably Eventually the AI will do it, right? <laughs> At a certain point, probably for everything, I guess. I don't know. But sorry. So, so yeah, how, how, how should, um, so are you suggesting that Twitter should have their human curators, uh, you know, uh, find out when there's one of these coordinated manipulation campaigns of the, of the algorithm and then label that or what's the solution? I think it's, I think it's really difficult. I think this question of, what surfaces and when, um, you know, should there even be trends is, is one, you know, yeah, what's your take on that? Are you so pro killing the trending column or do you think I, it should stay? I wrestle with it because I think that the answer should probably be yes. I think that, that it is. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that nobody really misses it on Facebook anymore. Right. It's not a thing that we feel that we've lost, but it is so um, much fun on Twitter. Um, it is so much fun. Also, and that's the, yeah. that's the thing. And it yeah, represents and, and some of our the, worst impulses, right? Like it does the main character thing where everybody teams up yeah. against one person and tries to destroy their life or like what you're talking about this stuff. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's really the question, which is, um, is there a way either, either we think about curation differently, right? Which is, you know, the onus is on Twitter at that point to, you know, with some public, input. Twitter's actually pretty good about kind of soliciting public input and testing things in public. Um, or there is, you know, there's been some um, questions about do we change the affordances in such a way where the, um, you know, we stop seeing the metrics, we stop seeing the number of likes, we stop seeing the number of retweets. And the question becomes, if we can't see that something has a high retweet value, like meaning the number is already high, um, there's there's a, there's a momentum dynamic, right? When you see something that has a lot of likes or a lot of retweets, you're sort of conditioned because it has that high you number to believe that a lot of people have engaged yeah. with it and to pay attention. 
And one thing that we see in our work on actual inauthentic networks, like we, you know, we do some work on, um, there are still Chinese information operations happening and they use clusters of accounts to like and retweet and reshare both their garbage troll accounts, but also their kind of prominent public figure state media accounts. So they have inauthentic amplification of real accounts, you know, oftentimes blue check accounts even. And so there's an interesting dynamic there, which is the recognition that if 500 fake accounts like a real account, like a minister of foreign affairs account, that tweet is going to look as if more people are paying attention to it, which then when I see it in my feed, inspires me to think that, hey, maybe this is something worth paying attention to. And there's sometimes a reflexive action that happens there. You see something that's gotten a lot of retweets or, you know, likes and you add your own to it. So even though any individual act of liking or sharing, we're not thinking of it in terms of in aggregate, we're creating momentum around this hashtag. In aggregate, we're creating momentum around this content. But this is the agency piece, right? Where we ourselves are active participants in this dynamic. And that was the other thing I wanted yeah. to get at um, in the in the article that I wrote for The Atlantic, which was positing that in some ways we talk about the algorithm and what should Twitter curate and how. To some extent, we talk about what I call the affordances, the tools, our ability to share, our ability to retweet, our ability to like, the, the capability that we've been given to participate in this way, which is fundamentally different. I get, you know, I get asked a lot or like, I read this um, Washington Examiner piece that were like, this is, this is all the same. It's the same as it's always been. It's not in the sense that we now have phenomenal ability as individual people to shape the way that narratives move. And when acting in concert, yeah. that ability is even more pronounced. Yeah. We and can I love, command yeah. attention. Yeah. And I like how you put it. And that's it in, the part that I think is understudied. Yeah. I like how you put it in your, in your story. Um, sorry. I mean, didn't mean to cut you off, uh, but I do want to read this Thank part. You know, you talked about how propaganda, you had propaganda that would come top down and control the masses um, from, you know, large institutions, politicians, church. And now um, you say uh, social media has ended the monopoly of mass media propaganda, but has also ushered in a new competitor, Ampliganda, right, which is the stuff coming from the bottom up. So the idea that propaganda could come top down is gone because the top, top doesn't control the message anymore. Now it's much more bottom up. Um, and you say it's the result of a system in which trust has been reallocated from authority figures and le legacy media to charismatic individuals adept at appealing to the aspects, personal or ideological identity that their audience hold most dear. That is fascinating, a fascinating paragraph and such an interesting perspective about this shift that we're seeing where the propaganda is now coming bottom up. Can you expand on that a little bit? I mean, I think that might have been what you were getting at. So the the term propaganda, and I I only got like, I got to keep one paragraph on this, but um, dates back to the Reformation when the Catholic Church is is trying to evangelize and feeling that they're losing out to the Protestants. This is the age of the printing press, and the Pope Pope Gregory has this exhortation. He uses the word propaganda, which is a particular form of uh, a Latin verb that carries with it a command. We, and it means to propagate, meaning to spread. And it, and the command is we must propagate the faith. We must propagate the true faith. Mm -hmm. And he has this paragraph exhorting the bishops to do this. And he's really insisting that this is how you bring people back to the one true faith, the one true reality. 
And I find, you know, when you read things like that and you can see the kind of parallels to today, everybody has their one true reality. There are these influencers who are out there and their, their job is to really reach the masses. And many of them have very large platforms commensurate with mass media, in fact. And so there's this interesting dynamic of this kind of middle layer of influencers who are not mass media, that, that control has fragmented. Propaganda over the years came to be seen as a thing that governments did, right? The, uh, the U.S. in World War I and II, Germany, of course, you know, Nazi propaganda in, US, in uh, World War II, um, the UK had, an, you know, had a propaganda office. This idea that states would manipulate the enemy public but also that states, governments and institutions and media would what Noam Chomsky came to call manufacture consent. It's actually a reference to um, a phrase from Walter Lippmann in 1922, I think, um, the idea of manufacturing the consent of the governed, which in the early days of thinking around propaganda was that you could create one unifying narrative that people would believe. And this was how you could nudge people in the direction of supporting a particular policy. In the 1920s, that was seen as actually a function of good government. The government was supposed to do that because how could the people be trusted to inform themselves? Now, today we recognize that as paternalistic and terrible, but it took a while <laughs> to get to that realization. And so in Chomsky's book, he uses the same phrase, manufacturing consent, but in a very different connotation, right? And what he is trying to do in that work is expose the extent to which there is this top-down control, he calls it the five filters, that shape what we see. And that model of propaganda comes to be the prevalent one in the mind of the public, right? The idea that propaganda is a thing that governments do to the people to create a unifying narrative and control them. And yet at the same time, we have these older versions of the term to propagate information, to spread information with an agenda. And the only reason I thought, okay, maybe we need a new term uh, is not because I wanted to make a new term. Uh, I actually usually think that's really cheesy. Yeah. But you don't strike um, me as the Tom Friedman type. So yeah. <laughs> when you come up with a new term, I'm like, okay, let's listen to what this is all about. Well, I, I felt that there was a need to point to this dynamic by which now the public has the capability to do that. The yes. public has the ability to create content. The public disseminates content. The public amplifies content. And that is so fundamentally different. That is such an inversion of the old power dynamic because mm -hmm. this is fundamentally all about power, right? It's about who yes. shapes the narrative, who controls the public perception. And that, I think, is really what is so remarkable about what's happening today. And it's this fundamental inversion. And we see it deployed particularly in topics like elections, right? And this is where the manipulative, the truly manipulative side comes in, not with something like Pelosi must go, but when you get into things like hashtag stolen ballots, hashtag stop the steal, where the material that is being put forth is false and manipulative and also highly resonant because the people who are going to amplify it trust the influencer and they're unified in their community. And that is also what we see with the QAnon dynamic as well, that idea of the tightly integrated community where the, the sort of body of facts is actually sort of fundamentally outside of the other body of facts. So this is where, again, that reference to the idea of the one true faith or the, you know, the one unifying narrative, that's no longer a possibility. Now we have these competing, these many, many competing narratives, many, many competing bodies of fact 
And that I think is what's most interesting uh, about what's happening today and what, what, you know, what network activism is evolving into. Yeah. And, and so let, let's, there's one last thought I want to end on, which is that one of the things that's been interesting. So um, Eugene Wei has this great post called uh, status as a service. And he talks about how people who people use social power users of social media will use it in order to achieve status. They might not have elsewhere. And he talks a little bit about how um, social networks at the beginning will start and people will try to build status there. And if they find that they're not getting it, they'll go elsewhere. And what's really interesting about these social networks, you know, thinking about that framework, by the way, I recommend folks go read that. Also read Renee's story. Um, but what I find really interesting about these, um, the activism that you see on social media is it almost always comes from the fringe. Because if you have status elsewhere, uh, you don't need to engage in these campaigns. So it's interesting when you talk about this, um, you know, long shot challenger uh, to Pelosi. It's like, oh, yes, of course, you know, that's the type of person that's going to end up using these techniques because like you mentioned, you know, you talk about these folks that are passionate about this stuff. It's like, yeah, they're going to be passionate because they can't get any, any, um, any way to break through otherwise. So understanding that this is mostly going to come from the fringe and these are very powerful tools. Uh, what do you make of that combination? Some people might say that's good where we're going to bring voices to people that didn't have them otherwise, but some others might say it's bad because like you mentioned, you're going to end up just getting this, you know, massive amplification of stuff that's, you know, false and potentially damaging. Well, when I think further out, I, I do think that that rising voices is good. Actually, I do think that that um, proliferation of opinions is is good and is where we need to be. I'm curious to see if actually the um, sort of moderate center um, begins to play in the same game. Actually, I, I am curious if they uh, begin to realize the extent to which um, the polls are doing it and, uh, you know, and start to, uh, to, to try to participate in that regard. It's hard to imagine like, you know, this, a trend, you know, people coming together to get the hashtag Pelosi is just okay. You know, trending across <laughs> social media. I know, I know. It's, it's really the, uh, yeah. again, it's that asymmetry of passion, you know, and for your point, some of the earliest things that I looked at were, Again, anti-vaccine activists who yeah. media rightly stopped covering conspiracy theories alleging that vaccines and autism were in any way related. Um, and so they turned to social media where they could, um, you know, kind of commandeer, a, you know, other people's hashtags with this theory. Again, that same way of that we saw Wayfair come into Pelosi must go. Um, they used to put forth these um, these kind of vaccine, anti-vaccine hashtags into Black Lives Matter. Actually, it was one of the places that they kept trying to stick it in. And. I so I think that potentially the center does begin to participate in some way. Maybe maybe we move into hashtags that are more policy oriented or express yeah. some form of fact. This might be like a total pipe dream. It probably is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my, you know, my my it's own a like, dream. You know, we all need a dream. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think. Well, I always you know when I was watching the vaccine stuff play out in the early days in 2015, I felt like um, it seemed impossible that tech platforms were going to change anything. Because you may remember in 2015, this was also when like the ISIS accounts were all yes. over Twitter, yes. right? And if we were letting terrorists recruit on a platform, you know, and, and calling that free expression because you know if this what a slippery slope. If you took them down, you know, what even was next? Um, and so it, it seemed at the time like platforms weren't going to change, but then we did see <clears throat> actually really material changes. And it's an interesting adversarial environment 
where anytime the platform changes the rules of the game by changing the structure, the, you know, the policy, um, <clears throat> so, you know, we have a saying in some of our work at Stanford Internet Observatory, um, policy shapes propagation, right? The rules that you set, your determination, your policy determine what people see, determines what people pay attention to. And so there are arguments for, is there going to be a creation of, for example, like a public interest internet? Ethan Zuckerman's doing some some thinking on that. Um, there's some people who are trying to think through this now, how do we regulate the algorithm, uh, which is an interesting, you know, interesting complex challenge. Should it be regulatory? Should it be self-regulatory? There's a variety of arguments um, kind of for and against those uh, those positions. There are people, um, you know, interested in things like um, CDA 230 amendments that take into account whether a platform proactively pushed something to someone, thinking about amplification of speech as opposed to carrying of speech. You know, is there a line in should platforms carry the content but not boost the content? Um, I actually do. Uh, I'm very sympathetic to the idea of carry the content but don't boost the content. I'm slightly less sympathetic when it comes into how do we incorporate CDA 230 protection into that dynamic. I think there are right. certain things that um, are, you know, particularly hard to regulate since this is speech and expression. And so I think ultimately there is going to be a lot of education and norms, uh, norms building that's going to happen. I think that making people perhaps a little bit more aware of how things work I would occasionally ping people on on Twitter who um, were alleging that they were being censored, and and I've asked a couple, you know, asked a few of these accounts, why why do you think you're being censored? What is the reason for that? Because these are very small, ordinary people accounts, not yeah. big blue chip influencers who Twitter would potentially throttle in some way. And the response is, well, my friends don't see all my content, and so the idea that there is an algorithm curating what goes into your feed is something that I, I don't know, actually, that um, that the the entirety of the public really understands. That there's such a glut of content that when you take out your phone, that kind of pride of place, those top six tweets that show up right when you, when you open your app, that that is selected for you because of a belief that this is what you are going to be most likely to respond to for a variety of different reasons. Um, the, I think... It, it had created an impression among a lot of these folks that Twitter was censoring them out deliberately uh, because their friends weren't seeing their stuff. And I thought that's a really fascinating interpretation of um, you know the idea that a curated feed is is somehow silencing you. And yeah, so I think that that education is is also um, really key, helping people understand how you know how and why. Um, platforms decide to surface what they do. Yeah. Well, look, uh, I always love to end on a dose of optimism. So <laughs> no matter how far-fetched, I'm really glad you, you brought it up. And Renee, I appreciate you joining today. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me on. Definitely. All right, folks, make sure to read the uh, article. It's on Atlantic.com. The title is, It's Not Misinformation, It's Amplified Propaganda. I'll also link it here. And uh, Renee, I'm sure that the type of work that you're doing isn't going to go out of fashion anytime soon. So please come back. Thanks so much. Well, uh, we're going to have one more guest, surprise guest uh, here at the end of the show. Uh, Zoe Schiffer from The Verge is coming on. She's been doing uh, some 
great reporting on how Apple and Netflix have fired uh, activists inside their company in the past. Seems like companies like Google would be willing to listen to people. Now, it seems like the tech companies have learned from that experience and they're showing them the door. So we will be right back with Zoe for another few minutes here on Big Technology Podcast right after this. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Welcome back to one final segment here on the Big Technology Podcast. Well, look, it's been a crazy run of news and there's a story that I think we have to cover uh, before we sign off today. And that is that both Apple and Netflix over the past week have fired organizers of worker activism movements. Now you might remember that Google had a very large and intense worker activism movement and the company listened to its activists in the beginning, it spoke with them, and then eventually uh, it pushed many of them out. And it seems like Apple and Netflix, um, which have nascent worker movements, aren't taking any chances. at least that's the perspective that I have reading the stories. Why don't we go to someone who's been reporting and writing the stories? Zoe Schiffer is a senior reporter at The Verge, first time guest here on Big Technology Podcast, but certainly, I hope, not the last. And she's published a couple of these stories just a few hours uh, between, uh, between one and the other. And it seems like it's all happening at once. So appreciate her coming on. Zoe, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's great having you. Um, so let's just talk about it. Apple, Netflix, they both have worker activists. Now they've fired some of the leaders of them. Now, usually there was a process where this took a little while before, you know, a company found some creative way to push people out. But both these these companies and Amazon um, have just said, we're going to sort of nip these movements in the butt. What's going on and what's your perspective on what's happening here? Yeah, you know, I think that a lot of these companies looked at what happened with Google in 2018 with the walkout and said, we don't want to be Google. We don't want to let it get that far. We're going to nip this in the bud a little bit. Particularly at Apple, you know, it's historically been so top down, so hierarchical that it's highly unusual. We've seen employees speaking out like this and creating a platform, the Apple II platform, where other people can submit stories of harassment and discrimination. And we had two very public faces of that movement. Um, a woman, Cher Scarlett, and another one, um, Yannicka Parrish. And Yannicka was fired um, just this morning. So I think we're and seeing this is me. Yeah. yeah, this is Friday morning. We're going to delay it a couple of days. So um, last okay. Friday. Yeah. 
Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, exactly. On Friday. Yeah. yeah, I think we're just seeing the limit of what Apple will tolerate. They're using very similar excuses to Google in terms of like the reasons that they're giving things like data security, violating data security, confidential information, et cetera. But I think internally the sentiment is this is retaliation for organizing. Yeah. So before we go on to Netflix, what's Apple II? So Apple II is this movement that came really out of the um, remote work advocacy channel. So internally, employees at Apple were very unhappy with the idea that they were going to have to return to the office. There was a ton of advocacy happening around that, um, sharing stories with Tim Cook about how it would impact people's lives if they were forced to return to Cupertino. That kind of spawned a whole bunch of worker organizing, people sharing stories about how they'd been treated internally, and finally kind of coalesced in this platform called Apple II. It's essentially just a website with a form where employees can submit stories about what they've experienced internally, and then two women, two employees, have been sharing those stories on Medium. Okay. Wow. And so there's a lot of this organizing happened on Slack originally? Yes, on Slack. And then it's being shared out on Twitter primarily. And then on yeah. Medium, there are a few different channels. Yeah. And now one of those two organizers is out. Yeah. And the other one is on medical leave. So um, oh, it's looking they like- always you know, put, both. They always put people on medical. I've heard this before, where like someone has a problem with the company and the HR will be like, why don't you take medical leave? Just to sort of, right. it's it's pretty unbelievable. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, unfortunately, it's we're wrong. seeing a lot. Of, yeah, yeah, we're, the Google organizers have been speaking out today, yeah. saying, "Oh, this is the Google playbook," and I right. think that that's really exactly. true that there's a playbook these companies use. Yeah. Okay, Netflix. Uh, what's going on there? Okay, stop me if I get too verbose here. But so Netflix, this has actually started a few years ago. Trans employees have been meeting with executives for years, telling them which content might be transphobic, harmful to the trans community. Yeah. In the past, they felt like these conversations went pretty well. If something was going to be super contentious, it would have kind of a disclaimer at the front saying like, hey, trigger warning, this might be um, offensive to certain groups. With the Dave Chappelle special, they actually did meet with executives prior to it coming out. They said that the jokes in the special were transphobic. Dave Chappelle had really doubled down on some of the previous jokes he'd made about the trans community. Yeah. And executives essentially said, we hear you. Thanks for your input. It's going up anyway. Mm -hmm. When the special came out, a whole bunch of trans activists and LGBTQ groups started speaking out about how it was transphobic and dangerous. And this kind of prompted employees to start speaking out externally as well. Right. There was a, there was very a tweet viral storm. Tweet thread. Exactly. Um, that this woman, Tara Field, did a trans employee talking about her experience at the company and her kind of views on the special. That went viral. She was then suspended. Netflix said it was because she attended this director level meeting that she wasn't supposed to. There was big public outcry. She was reinstated. And then just today, um, the company fired an organizer of the walkout. Employees had been saying on October 20th, we're going to walk out of work. Now yeah. the leader of that walkout, who is also the leader of the trans ERG, has been fired from the company. Right. ERG is Employee Resource Group. Um, yes. Thank you. Sorry. But but Netflix, uh, well, you know, we just acronyms galore. So uh, anyway, so Netflix say that they that says that they fired this activist because they uh, leaked the they suspect they leaked the actual um, cost that or, or the amount of money that they paid for the Chappelle special. If that's the case, is that isn't that a fireable offense? 
I mean, so it was unusual that the numbers leaked. There was this report in Bloomberg that said how much Netflix had paid yeah. for the special. Yeah, very it doesn't happen happens. very often. Um, yeah. How many people it had reached, how much it had paid for it. And I think the number, the price tag on it was like $24 million. So it's pretty eye-popping. Um, the yeah. employee had shared those metrics internally as part of their job. And this is not unusual for employees to do. Netflix has this culture of open transparency, open dialogue, et cetera. So there's a lot of numbers being shared around. Yeah. For it to leak externally was highly unusual. You know, if the employee did it, then I think um, Netflix has more grounds to fire them. But I don't think that that's the view of many employees who I've talked to who say, okay, this employee did really? share stuff internally, but we do not believe that um, they were the person to leak it externally as well. So I guess like, you know, we're thinking about Apple putting one of the organizers, uh, this is a mo again, this is happening in a moment where tech giant employees have felt empowered to stand up and protest. And, um, and Google obviously very publicly took, you know, a, a big hit. Um, I guess if you ask Google executives, the workers might be happier about what happened. Uh, but, but definitely a lot of executive, time and resources went into addressing some of the concerns of their workers. Uh, what do you think it means for, for tech activism now that, you know, we're, we're far beyond like the Google walkout, which was, you know, seen as somewhat impress, unprecedented. And now almost all the walker, walkout organizers uh, have either left or been pushed out of the company inside Google. Amazon has fired some of its, you know, whistleblowers or, you know, whatever you want to call them, employee protest leaders. Apple, of course, has brought down the hammer and now Netflix. Um, is this the end of employee activism inside tech companies? I mean, you know, at a certain point, you do wonder, you know, it, it seemed like Google employees felt empowered to speak up because they had been taught that in their culture, you, you, you speak up and that's fine. Um, but now is the signal being sent and there's a message being heard that, um, Employees just can't do this inside big tech companies. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. On? I mean, I think that there's going to be a chilling effect of the hammer coming down on these individuals. But I think we have to differentiate between the individual outcomes and the systemic outcomes. You know, a lot of these individual employees have been pushed out. They have been fired, but they haven't been silenced. They're continuing to bring charges through the NLRB. And particularly when we're talking about the fired five at Google, we're seeing those cases wind through the courts right now. And really, they could create precedent that would impact the entire tech industry. So same thing with Amazon, yeah. you know, they had this big union vote in Bessemer, the NLRB said that some of Amazon's tactics there were likely illegal, there's going to be another vote. So I think that we still have yet to see what the systemic impact of all this activism will be. I think it is definitely true that there will be individual consequences, unfortunately, but I don't think there's any, um, like stamping out the movement completely. I think employees are organizing, they're speaking out, and they're seeing that when they tell the truth on Twitter, when they talk to colleagues on Slack, that they get a lot of support and they can kind of create their own platform so that they cannot be silenced completely. Yeah. What, what do you think the companies uh, want? Because it seems it seems like, you know, they'll push out people on, I don't know, um, on the left uh, who are activists, it seems like they'll push out people who have like conservative views or, you know, views that are unpalatable to the left, like Antonio Garcia Martinez at Apple. So it is, do the tech companies just want employee bases that will sort of, you know, um, have these kind of milquetoast political views and 
and sort of leave them alone and allow them to run their businesses. I mean, it really depends on which tech company we're talking about. We've seen organizations like yeah. Coinbase that yeah. say very explicitly, we don't want you to have political discussions internally. Right. And then on the flip side, you have organizations like Netflix that say, we really value employee dissent. We really want you to speak back to executives. Uh-huh. But I think what they're seeing now is kind of the limits of those ethos. Like we really don't want that to ever leak externally. And it's kind of untenable to ask employees to voice their opinions. But then when they start voicing them a little more broadly to fire them. Yeah. So there's there's two uh, philosophies that are emerging in terms of like what's the best way to run a company. One is um, allow for, you know, political discourse and dissent, you know, uh, and that's some of the stuff that you see inside Google uh, and potentially a little bit of Netflix, although they've pulled back a little bit. Um, and the other one is don't speak about politics at work, which is the Brian Armstrong Coinbase theory. Um, focus on the mission. And if you need to talk about politics, we don't pay you for that. Um, go do that somewhere else. So uh, I, I do wonder, what, what do you think the best approach is? I mean, is there an optimal way to do this? Because the Brian Armstrong uh, perspective, you know, as we see some more activism taking place inside companies has won a lot of fans. Um, and so curious what your, your thought is on this part. Yeah. I mean, I personally believe that it's a fallacy to think that you can keep politics out of the workplace. Like the very nature of that company is political in some ways. And I think we have to remember that what we're seeing from Apple, from Netflix, from Google is, a breakdown in the communication internally. Many of these employees tried every avenue Mm. internally to have their voices heard, to have an open discussion. And they only spoke out externally when they felt like executives were not listening. And so I think there has to be a way to have those political discussions, to have an open debate, but to have more responsiveness from executives and um, more accountability to the employees um, so that there's an ability to kind of take care of some of these issues internally first. Yeah. Sometimes that might not be be feasible. Like I, I imagine there were some real discussions about that Chappelle special before it went out. There were, absolutely. And there's going to always be part of the employee base that's just not going to be satisfied in the company's answers. Completely. So. Yeah, it's tough stuff. stuff, But again, like, you know, for example, a lot of what we're seeing with Apple right now with the leaks, these are a lot of what executives were extremely upset about was an all hands meeting that leaked um, in September to The Verge. The contents of this all hands meeting were incredibly benign. Like as a reporter, I was like, this is very boring. There's no news here. But Apple made an enormous deal about it. And I honestly think it shot itself in the foot a little bit because it lost trust with employees by clamping down so hard on these leaks that weren't actually really leaks, almost to just make a point. And I think internally employees are feeling like, I didn't leak the designs of the next iPhone. I would never do that. I'm just speaking out about like, you know, these policies (laughs) that I don't believe in. um, And the reaction feels so outsized. Right. Life in Fortress Apple. And then uh, Tim Cook wrote an email to uh, employees, you know, about about uh, how they shouldn't be leaking. And, and that leaked as well. Did you publish that one or? <laughs> yeah, I did. Get that one. Yeah, that was a wild one. We love the, the leaks about the leaks. I understand how, how people inside companies, you know, might feel um, negatively about leakers. But I think you're really right. Like it, it does come down to can you have a productive discussion inside? Um, mm-hmm. and, and Generally, when stuff 
you know, goes as wrong as it does. It is, it is a product of, um, well, I don't know. I was going to say it's a product of communication breakdown inside. I'd agree with you, but also then I think about the Chappelle special and, you know, it's, uh, it's a, it's a tricky one. But that, that there was a breakdown there as well. Yeah. You know, there were those yeah. initial discussions, but they also employees have this open Q and a document where they can submit yeah. questions and historically executives have been really good about being in that document or responding to people. And there a few days went by and there weren't responses. There were a lot uh, of questions that I saw yeah. firsthand, very, very thoughtful yeah. questions from like many, many employees that yeah. just were sitting there. And I think people felt like mm. they were being ignored. Do you think that, and let's just end on this one because this is a sort of interesting question. I mean, the Chappelle special, I think we'll be talking about that and its impacts to Netflix for, for a very long time. Um, and there've been some strong headlines about it. Like the times wrote that Netflix has lost its glow. Um, weird way to put it. Uh, do you, do you think that, uh, there would have been a way for Netflix to reconcile with its employees and still run that special? Uh, because from my perspective, it does seem like there was this kind of line in the sand where some employees were like, basically, the only way we'll be happy is if you take it down. Like, was it a matter of communication or was it a matter of content? I really think it was a matter of communication. One thing hmm. that I know from talking to tons of Netflix employees over the past couple of weeks is that no one I spoke to wanted the special to be taken down. And they weren't asking really? executives. Nah for it to be taken down. Not one of the questions that I saw in that open Q&A document was, can we take it down? It was really, can you talk to me about our line between hate speech and commentary? Can you talk to me about how the decision was made? How are we yeah. going to help employees who feel unsafe? So they really wanted right. an open dialogue. And I don't know if really the result that they were intending was for the special to be taken down. And as we've seen, yeah. executives have never- Not coming down. Them. Yeah. Okay. But that is fascinating. It is, it is, I think we would all benefit from a conversation um, like the one that they were advocating for. It is also, it is interesting how um, Netflix has allowed the culture war to play out on its platform through comedy. And I don't know, to me, it, it just, I don't know. It seems like comedy is a good venue to, to have these discussions, um, but yeah. it's tricky stuff. It's hard. It's, it's hard. There's a, uh, you know, I mean, I read something this week about how you need to be able to laugh at yourself. Um, mm -hmm. And I certainly see that viewpoint. And I could also see the viewpoint of the people inside the company who might have felt hurt by some of the lines or wanted some clarification from executives. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, that's it. That we're, we're, uh, we're being told by the buzzer to, to wrap it up. So <laughs> big thank you to you, Zoe. Keep up the amazing reporting. I feel like I've learned so much from your stories about what's happening inside these companies and people can find you. Why don't you just shout out like the URL and on Twitter so people can find you? Yeah. It's just my name, Zoe Schiffer on Twitter. And okay. Find great. Me there or on the verge. Okay. Well, we'll continue to watch. Um, and, uh, and these stories for sure, uh, this isn't the end, uh, <laughs> you know, um, so it, it'll be fascinating to see how it plays out, especially Netflix. That stuff's wild. Yeah. No doubt. Okay. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for being on, Zoe. And thank you, everybody, for listening. It's been a long one today, but hopefully a uh, productive one, one you've enjoyed. Um, if you have any thoughts about how today's show has gone, uh, please feel free to email us, bigtechnologypodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your feedback, especially with the new format. And uh, I just want to say thank you once again for listening. 
Thanks to Nate Kowatney uh, for editing and mastering the audio. Thanks to Red Circle for hosting and selling the ads. And thanks to all of you, the listeners, most important of all. We appreciate you being here every week. We'll see you again next Wednesday with a new show with tech insiders and outside agitators. Hope you have a good week. Until then, take care.